We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp. Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Fresh off of a 54 to 16 beatdown at the hands of the Alabama Crimson Tide, I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. Allen, predictably difficult game on Saturday. Probably a little bit different than some people thought at certain points. Certainly a very weird first quarter. What are your overall thoughts on the game? It was a strange game. Uh, kind of a, a fun moment. Our first drive, score a touchdown, but never really got too high. You know, I think in a different game, the, the interceptions and the punt block for a touchdown would have just sent me over the edge. Like, we're killing ourselves in a game that we should be winning. But it felt like even with those things that Alabama was ultimately going to steamroll over us. And so it, everything probably came, felt weirdly detached and inconsequential as an observer. Like the, the outcome was already you know, defined, even though that wasn't the case. It kind of had the feel of inevitability. What about you? Yeah, it felt – the whole thing almost felt like a sham. I'm watching the pregame. You're at my house. We've got people at the house, and I'm watching the pregame roll – and they're building up this epic SEC championship game in the history. And I'm just thinking, like, this is a joke. This game is a joke. We're outclassed. They're hyping this up. It doesn't feel like the SEC title games that are so much fun. When you're playing for something you think you can win, which is a weird feeling in and of itself, then you get the first touchdown and all of us are high-fiving and celebrating and the joke around the house is let's turn it off now and go do something else and, and end this on a victory. So a weird, weird environment. Obviously frustrating. I imagine if I was a player in this game, especially a defensive player, I'd probably be really frustrated because you quickly spot them 16 non-offensive points right out of the gate. And I think what we've said all along on this podcast is bad teams will look at each previous game and say they'll fix the problems and start winning, but they can't do it. And mediocre teams will occasionally do it. And that's just what this Florida team really was. So it's easy to look at the game and say, well, wait a minute, what if we didn't turn the ball over? And what if we had better field position? And what if, what if, what if? But that's just not what we're capable of against an opponent like Alabama that doesn't really give you a whole lot. So sure, in the perfect world, we we don't do those things. But Alabama forces almost every team to do that. So it's a little bit of fool's gold to think if we eliminate those things, we, we would have won this game or could have made it really close. It's... 
not necessarily wrong to think that, but maybe also not the proper way to look at it. Yeah, we're not a bad team. We're, we're maybe a bad offensive team, but overall not a bad team with the strength of our, our defense and a, you know occasional wizardry on special teams thanks to our kickers. But, yeah, it was strange. Um, I had a feeling, you know, I talked about it last week of Alabama being a boa constrictor. They just continue to tighten you around you until you they crush you. And that was, by the end, what felt like a game that was somewhat close, 54-16 to 16 is an incredible beatdown. And, you know, feels like it should be an embarrassing score, but against this Alabama team, it doesn't feel all that embarrassing because of how dominant they've been. And we it feels a little flukish for them to get so many defensive touchdowns or special teams touchdowns, or I guess non-offensive is how they term it. But they do it every single week. So at some point, you have to give them credit for being the type of defense and type of team that creates those scoring opportunities. So it's not surprising that they did that. They've done it literally every week. Do you think this is one of the best Alabama teams? McIlwain said it after the game. The media is starting to echo that maybe this is the best Alabama team. What are your thoughts on that? It's hard to say that because of how limited they are offensively with Jalen Hurts. I mean, they are can be brutally effective at running the ball, and he's exceptionally dangerous in the open field as an extra running back back there. And they do score points. They've scored a lot of points this year. The defense might be their best. I don't know. They've they've adapted themselves. They're no longer the big bruising hulking presence on defense. They've gotten quicker and lighter and faster at a lot of positions and more versatile. So maybe yes for this modern. I don't think they'll be beaten as easily. Some you know those spread teams used to give them trouble. I don't think the spread teams will give them as much trouble because of the way they've adapted. And it's crazy that Alabama's running a spread offense themselves. But I think. If they had a real live quarterback who could throw the ball effectively, they'd be literally unstoppable. But they do have a weakness. So I don't know if they're the best. But that, I mean, that's Alabama every time. It's like they could do more offensively, but they don't need to. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I, de- I definitely don't think so. I, I, the way I look at a team, if you're going to say a team is maybe one of the best that's ever played college football. I think they would have to have reached a ceiling in their own category. And like you said, there's tremendous, tremendous room for improvement on the offensive side of the ball for them. They can be very one-dimensional. This is now the seventh game that Jalen Hurts this season threw for less than 200 yards. Uh, Jalen Hurts didn't run the ball that well. He only completed a handful of passes, most of them, three of them, or which accounted for almost all of his yards, had a short field a bunch. Um, they, They sort of, like we said, I think, last week, that was the exact narrative. They have better positions than any other team in college football. They have better players, rather, at every position than they any other team. You. And All eventually you. that's just going to win out because Nick Saban teams don't give you anything. And so I think if they wanted to be an historically great Alabama team, they would have to be better than just we play solid and we're more talented than you. They'd have to be reaching another level. Now, 54-16 to 16 is definitely an epic beatdown. Uh, but you look at our own team and how much we forced into that. I, I think the playoff could be interesting for Alabama is what I'm going to sum this up with. I think Clemson is a team that could give them a lot of trouble. If there's one thing we illustrated in this game, it's that with the injuries they have on the back end, they are very vulnerable to giving up passing yards. And we ran a lot of four and five wide sets, which we'll talk about later, which definitely gave them trouble. With a better trigger man, we could have really threw for a lot of yards in that game, which is something we'll miss it against <laughs> them as well. But like you said... Whether you like it or not, this Bama defense, they give up their first touchdown to us in over basically two months, and they score touchdowns all the time. At some point in time, it's not a fluke. So there's something they're doing that's consistent, and that defensively is is absolutely 
one of the best defenses that we've seen in college football, just statistically, even if at times they don't feel like they're completely dominant. You're not going three and out on them every single time. You noted this during the game is that they, I'm sure they saw the Florida State tape where Florida State blitzed the crap out of us, and they were like, nah, we're good. We're just going to play straight up. You might get some yards. I think they we did better against them than they expected us to. Completed some more passes, you know, things like that. They probably didn't expect us to come out and throw the ball as much as we did. But I think they're like, you know what, we'll be fine. We're, we're ultimately going to stop you or turn you over or something. And they did. Now, that's, I think, a testament to their philosophy is they – they don't feel like they need to be interesting or deceptive or take chances. They're like, we're going to win if we just play straight up. And they have every week. Now, will that work in the playoffs? We'll see. But a devastating performance. Let's talk about a guy who we didn't talk about very much in some of these bigger wins, but he's come up a lot this week, Austin Appleby. What did you make of his performance this week? It was it was bad. Uh, and, and I mean, that's obvious, right? And of course it was bad. There's a lot of frustration with Austin Appleby. And then at times it was, it was really good. I mean, he did some things against Alabama that a quarterback hasn't done against them since really <coughs> Arkansas did. And I think that's what the comparison was. He had a very similar game to what Austin Allen had at Arkansas Threw a lot of picks, moved the ball, had open receivers, but ultimately his turnovers are so costly it couldn't overcome it. But we, we've said this consistently about Austin Appleby. If he gets a vanilla front and he gets some time, he does well. On the second drive, Alabama comes out and goes into a 3-4 defense. They don't run it very often. In fact, they only ran it about five times in the game. But they come out of straight 3-4, which obviously we know LSU gave us tremendous amounts of problems in that game. Um, and they probably get a pick on first down. They just blitz the linebacker right up the gap. Standard LSU style D. Austin Appleby freaks out and throws the ball. So... His problem and what's really plagued him his whole career, whether you call it PTSD from Purdue and getting hit a million times, is his footwork completely falls apart when he gets a little bit of free. Throws off his back foot. Throws off his back foot, throws off platform. He's risky. He doesn't think at all. He doesn't use his outlet valves. He doesn't check down on anything. The flip side of that coin is we had so many open receivers in that game. I mean, you can watch almost every single play and someone's open. So you say, okay, the good news is we're generating open guys. The bad news is he can't see it. So certainly... His pre-snap reads, his vision, his post-snap read, and mainly really his disastrous decision-making is going to is going to create doom when you play a team like Alabama. I give him a lot of credit in this game. When we were down 33-9, to he had that excellent drive down the field to make it a football game again. Great and then another really the end, good yeah. drive uh, coming out in the third quarter. So he did some things to bounce back. He showed you that he's not just going to go into a shell when he's basically costing his entire team the game. But when you have his kind of footwork in the pocket, you have very little pocket presence at all. You keep your eyes focused on the rushers when someone breaks contained as opposed to downfield. It's very, very hard to be successful, especially against a team like Alabama. I was surprised, though, that Alabama did come in with such a conservative front four game plan. Very little stunting, very little blitzing. After watching how Florida State completely decimated Appleby. And like you said, that's a testament to either A, how little they really cared about what we could do to them on offense, or B, they knew that it only took a few confusion points for Austin Appleby and he was going to make tremendous mistakes, which is exactly what really I think happened. they just, and this is Nick Saban, he went, he's like, let's just not get beat by fluky stuff and they're not going to be able to beat us straight up. And it's funny because we were in the game because of some of the plays Appleby was making and then of course he loses the game with plays that he makes, so... You know, live and die with Austin Apple, who usually die, I guess. Yeah, we'll never know that hitch route to Callaway. That's kind of a thought. Is it a hitch or is it an in? No one commented on it. There is no way to know. You could look at the receiver and say he's definitely running an in. He's right, but he could have gotten that wrong. 
Applebee certainly threw a hitch. Both yeah. of them were open, regardless of the thought there. But that was obviously a frustrating one. But it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You just look at his body of work and you say, hey, look, you know what? When we reflect back on Austin Applebee's time. You may be thinking it's a bad thing we had him. We did wind up winning the SEC East because you think, hey, we could have played a freshman, which is an unknown, and we'll talk about that later. But at the very least, he came in as a stopgap. We did win the SEC East, and he won a game against LSU on the road. He's made a few throws here and there. He scored two touchdowns against Alabama, which hadn't been done in several weeks. So he's not good. He's kind of exactly what we thought he would be, um, and obviously a frustrating performance from him, I'm sure. Well, he's a guy you hope you don't have to rely on, and this year we had to, and that that's what we were dealt with there. Quickly about the defense, 54 points is a ton. Now, a lot of those were, you know, not given up by the defense. What, it, what was your opinion of their performance? Were you disappointed? Is this about what you expected from them? I thought it was about what I expected. I think they broke, and we'll talk about that as well. We're going to talk about strategy and tactics here in, in the next couple of minutes, which I think we'll get into the reasons as to why. But the game went as I thought it would go. They they, they were heroic early on in this game. Uh, Alabama really couldn't even move the ball on them. The first quarter, they have minus seven yards. Second quarter, they get that that jailbreak pop route because we run a corner blitz. The perfect play call right, against us. that, which is really unlucky. Uh, also... A testament to Lane Kiffin and the staff. I can assure you without having seen that exact play on film that that was a wrinkle that other teams had probably successfully cornered Blitz Alabama on and they adjusted it because that was way too coincidental that that play was built like that. So hats off to them for designing that play. You're going to get beat sometimes. But all in all, the defense, I thought, I mean, so many injuries, so, so many, many freshmen out there. They did the things we wanted them to do. And, and we discussed that last week, which we're going to talk about in a second. So I, I feel like what else could you have expected out of them in this game, really? Yeah, they they played well enough to keep us in the game at the end. You know, they gave up some drives. And Alabama, when they get the ball rolling, running, you know, especially running behind that, you know, excellent at times offensive line with their stable of running backs, it can be hard to stop, especially missing some of the more talented run-stopping defensive linemen, such as Sherritt and Cox. And so, you know, and our youth got exposed a couple times. There's a play, you know, the rather big play in the game, third and 16. And, um, you know, Chauncey Gardner back there at safety, you know, <laughs> bites it on a fake really hard. Great route by Stu- Ardario Stewart. And, you know, I'm sure he hadn't seen that before in that look, you know, and even the good safeties will give up that kind of play. But, you know, just our youth was exposed a couple times and, you know, they wore down over the length of the game. So good effort by a young, very, very young defense at this point in the season. A lot of freshmen, um, you know, that's about as much as you could ask for them. Let's talk about overall strategy. And we're going to, we're going to, let me define these terms here. Strategy would be like the big picture. What are we overall trying to accomplish in the game and how are we going to do it? And then tactics, you know, which play call at the right time, what do we do in this certain specialized situation? So first we'll talk strategy, and then we'll talk tactics. James, I really liked our strategy in this game. I like the aggressiveness. I think our coaches realized if you are straight up playing against Alabama, you're going to lose, right? We can't just win you know, by like running the ball and being conservative and hoping that we're going to win, especially how depleted our defense was. So we were super aggressive. You know, the only way we were going to win the game was throwing the ball a million times, which is not what Alabama expected. We barely ran the ball. We went for it. 
on fourth downs, we tried some trick plays, flea flickers, fake punts. Now we'll get to the tactics, whether those things worked. But I like the fact that our coaches weren't content to try to lose close, right? Not to make it embarrassing. They're like, you know what? If we lose 54 to 16 or 30 to 12, whatever, you know? And so I, I applaud them for their effort in the big picture strategies game. What did you think about their aggressiveness? I liked the, the game plan coming into the game on both the offense and the defense. And, and that was to be aggressive on both sides of the ball. Starting with the defense, we talked last week that we had to be aggressive against the flat. We had to spy the running backs, and we could not let Hurts run, which means you've got to be close to the line of scrimmage. We did just that, down bodies, came out in the 4-3. I thought, I thought Kylan Johnson continued to prove that he is a phenomenal linebacker in space. I mean, Great he prospect. is incredibly fast. He can cover Hurts and anyone else by himself which most guys really can at that linebacker spot. So he he impressed me the most in this game. But very, very solid game plan. And it worked really, really well. We were well-schooled and well-prepared for what Alabama wanted to do in that game. And on the offensive side of the ball, it's one of the first times, I think, that we've had the proper game plan coming into the game, which is that you cannot beat Alabama at their own game. Coming into it, we need to pass the ball. They are susceptible to four and five wide receivers, which is exactly what I thought about the Florida State game, and we didn't do it. We tried it twice, and it didn't work, and we sort of packed up our bags and went home. I did like the commitment to that. I thought that was a good pregame execution of where they're weak, and the question really becomes, well, then what went wrong, which we'll talk about, but I did like the game plan on both sides of the ball. In fact, even in a way, it felt like a little bit of a cultural shift to say, let's actually try to play the game. Let's try to win the game and not just hang on and hope that by some fluke we, we wind up pulling one out. Right. So, I mean, they had to turn out Appleby loose. He's going to throw a ball a ton. Now, the odds are he's going to throw picks, and you're going to lose. But you're going to lose if you just run the ball three times and punt, too. So, you know, you just have to hope that he's going to avoid those mistakes, or maybe they'll drop a couple picks, or something weird's going to happen. So I like the aggressiveness gamble in that. And so I applaud our coaches for, you know, not just playing – to, to, like I said, lose close. Now, there are a couple of tactical moments. Let's get into some of these. Let's break these down one by one. What's the first one that you want to bring up? Well, the timeout on the field goal, and these are small things, but this is a big game. So you, you have Alabama lining up for their first field goal, and we perceive to have 12 men on the field or 10 men on the field, whichever one you like, either one. We had 11 men on the field, so we're ready for the kick. We call timeout, and you you burn a timeout. So that's a, like a tactical moment in a game when really – that should not happen as a coach. Um, that's a small one. They tended to get bigger after that one. The second one is is the blocked punt. So this is a special teams tactical moment, but we're lining up in a base formation. Alabama is not in a block punt formation. They are in a standard formation. It is eight guys on Bama versus eight guys on our special teams blocking unit, not including the punter. It is an even man situation. And Marcel Harris just literally loses his mind and forgets to block his gap he doesn't block his gap at all which allows the right side gap to just run straight in and block the punt Taven Bryan we only have a two-man protector team back there Taven Bryan takes the middle guy it's how it's designed just a just a brain fart in an epically important moment and that's not a coaching decision but that's a tactical error based upon you know whatever you want to look at practice game film etc that's a huge huge play in that game and oh yeah. by the way it, it happens two seasons in a row we did it to Alabama last year. They blocked a punt. So you think if there's any game where you're going to make sure that doesn't happen, it's this one. Very simple mental error. That was really, really costly. But then where things really started to go wrong tactically, I think, came in two phases. One, the specific moment, and two, the general arc of the game. So we wind up faking a punt. 
Now, whether or not you like a fake punt on fourth and three from your own 25, 28-yard line, the score at that point in time was 16 to, what is it, three? Seven? 16-7 at that time, right? 16-7, yeah. Or 10-7, I don't even remember now. But at that point in time, you're faking a punt. I believe it's 16-9. You're you're faking a punt. And um, you call timeout. And then you're going to go to the sideline. And you're going to get the coaches together. And now you're going to go back out there. And you're, you're going to actually run a fake punt. Which to me seems like the worst of all scenarios. Because now you've right. given Nick Saban, who's a very good game theorist, a chance to say, what is my opponent most likely going to do? It's fake a punt. And then you fake it anyway. So you also don't execute it, which is which is a which is a which is a failure. So if you've been practicing this play, I don't really know. But how do you feel? I know how I feel about it. I, I hate it. I hate calling timeouts and then running fake plays because it's, it's, it's way too obvious. You've lost right. my surprise. What are your thoughts in that situation? So here's here's where I like yeah. Here's where I was talking about the strategy and the tactics. Overall, I think you've got to mix in a few of those things. At that point in the game, on that field position with that score. And like you said, after a timeout, if it, it felt kind of like we're going to be aggressive, that that felt like it went over the line. We're going to be aggressive in the face of stupidity, maybe in this moment. It's hard because I don't want to kill him for the fake punt. I like the idea of a fake punt. I think you have to pull out everything, and if it doesn't work, that, that's the aggressive part. You know, we did the flea flicker; it didn't work. Whatever, you know. I, so I want to say I'm in favor of those types of tactics. Felt like in that moment we didn't do it well. And who knows? Maybe he catches it, you know, and we pick it up easily because we see what alignment they're in. And they're like, hey, this we saw this. It's still going to work. Let's do it. And the fact that we didn't execute on it, maybe we'll never know the full story on that. I think this illustrates a really nice scenario between strategy and tactics because your strategy says we want to be aggressive. We don't want them to take the game to us. But there's a difference between being aggressive and being reckless. And aggression is best applied when your opponent is being conservative, when they're allowing you to essentially do something to them uh, and they're, they're being passive, right? Or aggression is best applied when your opponent is being aggressive because you can take advantage of their aggression. When your opponent is, let's say, being smart, they're somewhere in the middle, they're adjusting to what you're doing, not so ideal. Bama comes out of that timeout in a punt safe. They're sitting in a punt safe. Now will be the time where I get in my headset and I say, hey, Let's go ahead and not fake this punt because Bama's literally sitting in a punt safe alignment. Maybe we still make that happen, but that feels a little bit reckless to me. So the strategy of being aggressive, I like. The tactic of doing it in that moment, maybe not so good. Maybe fake a punt later. I'm not really sure. At that point in time in the game, your defense had not given up a single point yet on their own accord. I don't love it there, but I would flip the script and say, hey, if they're lined up in a punt block and you think you've got a play that beats a punt block, fake it. If they're lined up super conservative way back setting up a return, fake it but don't fake it when they're sitting in a punt safe and that's kind of my critique on these tactical tosses you've got to make sure the tactics line up with your aggressiveness let's talk about the key to the game though there were some plays we tried there were some plays that worked and didn't work but there was one drive in this game that's going to really mean the most and it's the drive coming out in the third quarter we get a stop there is momentum in our side as strong as it had been since the first touchdown we are starting to really make this possibly a football game we drive all the way down the field with almost exclusively successful passes. We sprinkle in a few runs, and they were pretty much worthless. We get down to the three-yard line, and now here's your game plan. You've been throwing. You're aggressive. That's your idea. We go heavy package run. We go little jet sweep 
to Brandon Powell, which I don't mind that play. That was a spread play. I like that play. Heavy package run, heavy package throw. That seems to me to be a tactical tactical mismatch of your advantage. Your advantage was to pass on them. You get in the goal line and you run what's best for them. You line up and go as heavy as you can to beat them at their own game. I'm not sure how that disconnect occurs at that part of the field, given what you have been successful at. I guess that they felt like we've been successful in short yardage, although we had not picked one up on third and one earlier in the game, I believe. Yeah, that felt really strange. The offensive line had actually done an admirable job of pass protection in this game. You know, they, you know, of course, there have been some pressure, especially on bad plays, but they kept a pretty clean pocket, especially on short throws, which in this case would have been a short throw, even only going like a yard here. So I that felt very confusing to me. Now, maybe you're trying to zig where they think you're going to zag. I don't know, but it didn't work was the bottom line. And I know that you're very much in favor of kicking a field goal right there in that point in the game, that specific moment. I am. We're down We're down three scores. You have to get a third score. You would love for that third score to be a touchdown, but it, it, the theory of momentum will tell you, you want to, when you, when you are the team that is behind, you want to keep putting pressure on your opponent. You must keep doing that. The only time you want to go for broke is when you can either A, break your opponent and outright win the game, or B, you think you have a scenario that is a high probability of success. We had just gotten stopped three times in a row on the goal line trying to run the ball. Austin Appleby on fourth down this season on fourth and goal. I don't even know what the conversion rate is, but it's not high. But most importantly, let's let's rewind it a second and look at why we should have ached the field goal and B, what happened on third down. On third down, we lined up in heavy package. We lined up with 10 men. 10 men versus their 11. Yeah. This is the most crucial play of the game to this standpoint in the SEC championship, and we're down a guy against Alabama. And then we go on fourth down. And if you're going to run a fourth down play, let's say, hey, I want to go for it. We're going to be aggressive. That's our strategy. Let's forget about the fact that in the game we need three scores. We're down 17, not 16. We need to be able to score here. We run a one-pass option on a backside slip out to Goolsby, and he falls down. There was no, I mean, not to Goolsby, sorry, to Lewis. There was no other receiver going out. Goolsby just ran out to the corner because he saw the play got busted, but that was not a play. So you're on fourth down and goal, the biggest play of the game, and you dial up a one-pass option. Now, maybe you say, hey, that's Appleby, but I don't get that. You've been having tremendous success spreading out the field and giving the ball to Brandon Powell, the running back spot, which is a brilliant strategy. That's a great strategy. Notice on film, and you get in the red zone, you don't do it one time. That was your best advantage. Not one time do you try that. I don't get that. But lastly, most importantly, kick the field goal there. You make it a 14-point game. You put the pressure on Alabama. You let the defense fill themselves with emotion. You let the stadium tighten up. You let the Gator fans get excited. Let Alabama feel like they're in a game. But when you go for it and you don't get it, the game is over. So here's where we disagree, and we've had this discussion on fourth down tries frequently this season. I felt like we weren't going to score enough points it didn't matter if we kicked the field goal. That was ultimately a, a losing thing. Now, I understand the momentum part of it. I would say that that's a secondary factor. Feel A kicking field goal, if I'm thinking momentum-wise, feels like a little bit of a defeat anyway. You get the ball down to the one-yard line, and you can't score. That feels like a win for Bama. The defense got them to third and 16 on the next drive and gave up a play. We were going to get the ball back you know, in relatively good field position, You know, not backed up on our own end. So I thought the gambit worked except for we didn't score and then we didn't we gave up the big third down play. I felt like we needed to get the points there to kick a field goal 
felt like shuffling, you know, chairs on the Titanic at that moment to me. I didn't like the play call, like itself, the, you know, the actual play that we ran, but I was in favor of going for it there. And I'm tend to be I I'm more aggressive down there. I, I agree. It's, it feels like a, a coin flip to me, like that you're, you lose, you lose a ton of momentum there, but I think you gain so much more if you put it in there and score seven. I don't know. I'm conflicted about that. I understand why he went for it. And I think I might've done the same thing. Yeah. I definitely don't like, regardless of whether you find yourself on the, let's go for that in fourth down, down three scores or not the succession of plays we ran from the two yard totally. line was, was, a, was a was abysmal. I, I don't I don't I don't mind the Sian, if you're going to run the Siante Lewis play on that slip out screen. That's first down. That's your first down play. You line up heavy package. You slip them out. That's first down. If you're going to run the Brandon Powell play, that's a great play on second down or third down or even fourth down. That's the only play that's the most versatile. You're getting your best playmaker. He's been the hottest guy in the game. Uh, essentially one on one on a flat route, and he almost scored. The rest of it was garbage. The timing was wrong. And, and Tease Tabor had something interesting to say. They asked him at after the game about essentially that play and what that's like on defense to be demoralized. And he says this, quote, It was a 17-point game at the half, and we come out and we get stoned at the goal line. The game is over with. Right after we don't score like that, it's over with. And I think that is the key illustration. If you're going to roll the dice and you're not going to score a touchdown there, you are essentially demoralizing your team. Now, there's flip sides to this argument. Your players should play through it. All these things are great. These are humans. These are kids. They've had seven years of putrid offense. It's very, very hard to flip the switch and say we're going to win. You're also right to say that kicking a field goal is not a victory. But you're down three scores. That puts you within striking range. That gives your defense something to build on. You're not hooraying. You're not celebrating that. But you're saying, hey, we're closing in on them. Maybe we still lose by 40. It doesn't really And matter. the defense have been playing well but, to that point. I, so that's another factor is like if we put the pressure on them, we probably can get the ball back, you know, and maybe this comes a really close game. With the way the score ends up, now it looks back. It's like, well, if you kick the field goal or not, you know, what does that matter? You're getting crushed. So it felt like we need to do something to turn the tide there. But I, I do recognize from the player's perspective, obviously from Jalen Tabor, who knows about the rest of the guys really, but he probably is at least – representative of a good number of them that they felt deflated after that even though they got them into third and 16 you know what we were doing was working it just couldn't make it happen and yeah to put a bow on this i think that's the key thought is that when you're thinking of a tactical scenario when you're using a situation like game theory to address what is your opponent doing what am i doing you have to take into account the motivation and the psyche of each team what does scoring a touchdown against Alabama do to their psyche? What does it do for our psyche? What does kicking a field goal do for our psyche? Then you have to evaluate the most likely scenario that at that point in time keeps you in the game. If you think the scenario is if you don't get it, you lose, it's probably too soon to make that decision. Even though, like you're saying, the overall strategy of having to score points against Alabama is a correct one. But tactically, and I think Urban Meyer had a great feel for this, in certain games that he would run these punt blocks and these punt fakes, which almost seemed crazy on their own, he had a really good idea of what that would do to his opponent if it succeeded. And oftentimes he was successful running it in the proper front. And those are really important plays in football games. So so don't think that I'm not aggressive. I'm a very aggressive style person. But you have to employ these things in more than just a sort of vacuum of it's fourth down from the goal. We're always going to go for it. Context sometimes matters, that's right. for sure. Correct. Sometimes that's wrong. Well, okay. So let's talk about a few player responses via social media after this game. You just you know gave a Jalen Taylor quote. There's a couple other quotes from past 
players and current players. You get two really interesting ones. So the first one you get is during the game, Treon, who has not sent a tweet out, Treon Harris, former quarterback, hasn't sent a single tweet out from his account since he left the team. And he sends one and then deletes it. But obviously anyone who knows about Twitter knows that someone's going to snapshot that tweet. And it simply says, it's the OC with a little crying emoji face. So it's Doug Nussmeyer is what he's basically He's saying the OC is on. the problem. The OC is the problem. Not the quarterback. It's not Mitreon Harris. Now you Gator fans know that it's it's Doug Nussmeyer. What are your thoughts on that? So I don't know how to take this as one being really insightful and someone who from the inside cutting through. It's you know, it's not McElwain, his philosophy, it's not the players, it's the guy dialing up the plays on each down and helping construct the game plan. This is also maybe very easily sour grapes from a player who played horrifically and would not like the blame on himself. And that seems to be a very valid response to this. Uh, I don't know what to think. I, of course, it's probably, I assume Trion doesn't have the most affection for Nussmeyer considering how he looked under his system. But I don't know. It feels a little more like sour grapes to me. What about you? Yeah, it's hard to know. Like we said last week, it's just hard to know about Nussmeyer. He, he certainly has made, as we've heard on this very podcast, tactical play calls that I think are wrong. But you also don't know how much the head coach is infiltrating that mindset. We don't know anything about how McElwain and Nussmeyer call plays, so we can only guess, Trion can only guess. It's easy to say that in this context of the game. Certainly Nussmeyer has his fair share of detractors. Like we've said, just go read a Michigan message board. Uh, they really dislike him. So Hard to know right now. It's still hard to know if he's presided over two horrible years of offense here. I think when Will Greer was was running the offense, a lot of people thought his play calls were great and he were keeping people off balance. So it's tricky for him. I'm not sure it's just the OC. Luke Del Rio tweet, tweeted out something uh, yesterday, so Sunday, which is also interesting. And he said, quote, in all kinds of, and he put in quotes, fair weather to illustrate that he feels like maybe the Gator fans are jumping off the ship or they're being ruthless or whatever. What are your thoughts on that one? I don't mind a player chastising the fan base, really. Um, I more usually mind the fan base chastising a player. Um, So I feel okay with this reprimand because it's probably true. I love that part of our, you know, not our alma mater, but whatever this song is that we sing at the end of the third quarter, you know, whatever, however you want to label that tradition. But where it says in all kinds of weather, we all stick together. And I think... You know, I don't think criticism means you're not sticking together, but some fans, part of our fan base is extremely vocal about expressing their displeasure, oh, you know, to anyone, anywhere, anytime. And, and you know, basically jumping off the ship is like, I'm never watching a game again. And, oh, you know, kind of freaking out and where it's like, hey, you know what? We're in the SEC title game. Let's look at the big picture. I can understand where Luke Del Rio is coming from. And I don't mind him chastising gently the fan base there. What about you? It just smacks of the sort of thought that maybe we should blindly support athletes and pat them on the back for everything they do. But I agree with what you said. That's the mindset. It's We all stick together, yes, but that also means we're free to share our opinions and we don't have to love watching our team get smashed by our rivals year in and year out and think, oh my gosh, you guys are so great. I love you. I'm going to come to every game you play and vocally cheer you on. There's a balance there, right? Can you still be analytical and supportive? Yes, I think that's what we're doing right now. We analyze the team each week, but clearly you and I want to see this team succeed. We are rooting for them to be successful. Those two things don't have to be separate. Right, and we're not using epithets and like calling these you know, players human bags of garbage and saying, I'm going to burn your house down. 
which he's probably experienced some of that. So coming from a different perspective, I don't want to say that, you know, we're insulated from that. Those players sometimes aren't some of the nastier sides of social media and, you know, fan conduct. So I can understand some frustration on his part that he feels like people aren't supportive of them. Like you said, there's a line there between criticism and, I don't know, using people as dartboards and punching bags when these are kids playing college football, you know. They're not horrible human beings because they drop a pass. They might be ineffective players, and the coaches might be ineffective for putting them in there, but they're not, you know, bad people because they missed a block. It's time now to announce our final winner of the 2016 football season for the FanEssentials.net free swag giveaway. And the winner this week is Christopher Yanes. Christopher Yanes, he is a University of Florida student and was an honorary Mr. Two Bits this season. We had pulled Z out of our random letter generator. And since Y is closest to Z, Christopher Yanes is our winner. Chris, thanks so much for listening. Thanks to all of you for listening and for supporting the show. We would not be able to do this without you. We love doing the show, love getting your feedback. You can reach us anytime via Twitter, Facebook, or your favorite medium to contact us. We're very responsive and love talking with you. Finally, big thanks to fanessentials.net for providing us with the giveaways for the 2016 season. We look forward to partnering with fanessentials.net and other great companies that you will enjoy in the future. Okay, James, we're headed into bowl season. We're playing against Iowa in the Outback Bowl. But I know you and I largely consider that to be an exhibition. So for all intents and purposes, the season is wrapped up. It's closed. So let's go ahead and take a look back at some of our preseason predictions. So you and I both predicted a 9-3 and finish with losses to LSU, Arkansas, and FSU. So pretty close on that. I mean, the Gators finished up now 8-4. and We didn't predict an SEC title game because they fought too many factors in there. And we're missing the win versus Presbyterian that we would have gotten had we played that game. So pretty close on that is... Is that what you, you know, does that line up for you? The overall win-loss record lines up just about perfectly. And we got two out of the three games preseason correct. So if you look at our prognostication, it was pretty accurate. We flopped a little bit in the middle there on just one pick. But it feels emotionally different than I wanted it to feel. It doesn't feel like the 9-3 and three I thought it would feel. I didn't think it'd feel great. We said in the beginning of the year we would see some progression and be weak in other areas. We didn't necessarily think we'd win the East. We kind of hedged our bet and said it's probably going to be really close. It's going to be a coin flip. We'll find out later. Which it was. Right, which was different than the national media and our own SEC media said. So I think we had a much better read on this team and what the defense and offense could be preseason that would allow us to be competitive. But it really does feel different. And I think the stats we're about to look at will probably tell us why most of them are obvious. But it's good to do a little forensic comparison. So let's start with a defense, which we thought would be a top 10 unit, maybe an elite defense, you know, upper echelon of the SEC and, you know, top 10 nationally. And they came pretty close to that, actually. Um, if you're looking at a lot of different categories, you know, pass defense, definitely rush defense. They fell down a little bit, but generally around the top 10, if you're looking at it, kind of a collaboration of a lot of categories. And that's pretty impressive considering all the injuries we had. So, yeah, would you give us a pass on that top 10 you know guess there yeah i think we nailed that one because we said uh, verbatim this this unit could be elite and that was early on and we said what could derail this unit injuries we didn't have the depth at key positions i actually think this this defense exceeded my expectations with the depth i mean i had stated very early on in the season that it was a big concern for me 
if Anzalone and Davis for some reason went out, I Either thought one we would of them. be dead. And we weren't dead. And uh, we lost a whole lot more than that. So a really incredible job for Jeff Collins and the defense. They were not elite by historical standards. They will not be remembered by anyone outside of Gator fans for being anything other than a really good defense. But this was a special defense, a super special pass defense. They had a few rough moments. But when you look at their whole season and you look the hand that they were dealt, incredibly great job. It's hard to find too much fault with the players themselves on that defense. A few tactical moments with coaching, a few issues here and there. But all in all, for college football players, that was a, yeah. a, an excellent defense. I thought it certainly met the expectations at times exceeded it and then exceeded them with regards to all the injuries that we had to keep us competitive. Right, and if we're going to parse the words elite and great, you know, it wouldn't be elite, but definitely a great defense. I mean, statistically, always up there, kept us in every game, slash won us those games. Right in line with what we've seen really over the past five years, and it's funny because this Florida team has that identity as all defense, no offense, and we thought that might change a little bit. You know, we thought we might take a step back on defense potentially, but maybe the offense would tick upward and maybe finish, you know, not as a awesome offense, but we thought maybe in the 40s or 50s kind of collective ranking, it did not finish there, as we all know. Depending on how you're looking at it, 111th in yards per game, you know, kind of total, if I want to like put a number on 99th, somewhere around 100, that's pretty disappointing. Very disappointing. I had us somewhere in the 40s, which was a progression based upon improved offensive line play, improved decision-making at the quarterback spot, and the receivers that we had. We took a hit with the receiving core right out of the gate with, with Dre Massey, but it's disappointing. It's it's not acceptable. Uh, Luke Del Rio nor Appleby were, were capable of getting us into that range, so you can't blame the injury on Luke Del Rio for that. I don't think he's going to put us there either. So, yeah, looking at where we looked, I was in the rosy 45 area. You were at like the 60, which would be the realistic spot for progression. And, and we haven't progressed. It's now the, what, seventh year in a row that we're basically bottom bottom 15% uh, with regards to college football offenses in the state of Florida, recruiting the talent that we can recruit. It's really, really frustrating and, and a horrible year. And the exact reason why on this show in the preseason we said this team will either be good and win something and win important games or it will not. And that absolutely held true. If this was a top 45 offense, this team could have accomplished some things. They could have been really competitive and maybe even won something. But they weren't, and therefore they, they couldn't they couldn't reach that goal. Yeah, with that type of offense, I, I, you could have seen a one-loss team heading into the SEC title game. And then who knows against this Bama team. You could have a tremendous team and still lose that game. So, But yeah, the team, even successful record, felt like it, it didn't progress offensively like you hoped it would. That and that's what's the major major frustration I know for Gator fans. I know for us, like if this is, I think even record wise, if this had been a top um, forty offense and LSU and Tennessee and Florida State had been really great and we had still lost those games, you're like, you know what? That's fine. It's what we predicted, but it didn't feel like the offense took the steps it needed to. <laughs> Let's talk about some of our breakout players. Um, we were right on for a couple of them. So defensively, you picked Alex Anzalone. I picked Caleb Brantley. How do you feel about that pick? I feel great about my pick. I think that Anzalone was was a, a beast when he was in the football game. He was a difference maker. He was a phenomenal run stopper, solid in pass coverage, just a fantastic linebacker. Uh, hopefully we'll see him playing on Sundays or maybe more hopefully. 
we would see him stay here for another year. Which Who knows? Yeah, it's possible. But either way, guy's got a ton of talent. He's had a really injury riddled career, which we said in the beginning. Can he yeah. avoid an injury? Really freak forearm break for him. But great season. Very happy with my pick there. Uh, I think if you look across the defense, there are a couple other guys you could have picked with him. Uh, one of whom is your pick. But yeah, Anzalone was a, was a star this year on defense. Yeah. So Brantley, in terms of breakout, you know that probably doesn't describe his season because he really flew under the radar. You know, with his play, but as the season went along, you you noticed him making big play after big play. Especially, you know, we highlighted him in the LSU game. In some sense, won that game for us. He's been almost impossible to block down the stretch, um, and so excellent season by him overall. Didn't have the numbers or the national attention that I thought might come his way with a really big season, but still had an excellent season. <laughs> so now to the offense. Our breakout players, yours never. Maybe he took one snap. I'm he's not already, sure. He played the first half, but he he got hurt on his what first or second snap of the year. Yes, Dre Massey. Dre Massey. Down he goes, which is very disappointing. But don't worry, you'll get to see him again next year, and he should, according to all accounts, be excellent. Disappointing to say the least. And mine, a much bigger miss, uh, Luke Del Rio. You know, I thought he could be the guy who directs this offense and. You know, puts up points, and not that he was going to be all-world or first-round pick, but that he was going to get a lot of recognition because you would see a resurgent Gator offense, even in the 40s, where people the narrative wasn't Florida can't play offense. And that you know didn't happen. Looked up and down early on, got hurt, didn't look the same, then got hurt slash benched here for the final part of the season. So big disappointment, I think, from that end. And, you know, if he did have the season that I thought he could have, and I think we would have seen this team in the 40s, you know, or 50s, you know, at worst 60s. But he didn't. Um, all the talk about him being better than Will Greer last year during practice. I don't know what those guys were smoking. Or maybe he did look better, and he's a great practice player, and Will Greer sucks at practice. Who knows? But that turned out obviously not to be the case. So th- that's a bad prediction by me. And uh, I will, um, you know, you can tweet at me and tell me I'm an idiot. So... <laughs> We did win the East, which we thought we would have a better shot than most people. We talked about that. Did that feel an accomplishment last week? Penalties went down. You know, they're still high for the season, but I will say great job by the coaches considering how many younger players that the penalties actually went down over the course of the year. That's excellent. All right, let me bottom line this for you. Was this season a success? I'm going to go just based upon my my feeling because I'm a logical and analytical thinker. No surprise to all of you out there. So my feeling flows generally from that. My feeling is no. And and that's because I'm really separating it from the results. To me, progression as evidenced by the style of play and the culture that we're building is what is progression. And I don't think we did that. I think that our offense looks exactly the same. I don't think our culture has changed. I thought we played conservative during a lot of times. I don't feel like we've done anything this season to progress even at all in my mindset. And therefore, I'm going to say it was a disappointment and it did not reach the mark for me. I don't feel any more confident at the end of this season than I did last season. I still have plenty of question marks and I feel like essentially I'm just saying I'm still in wait and see mode. And I was hoping to have been sitting here in this chair saying, hey, regardless of our record, here is what I've seen. I feel good about the future, and I can't say that. So for me, I'm going to say it missed the mark. I'm going to say this was a success because of you know the record and going to the East 
and you know the continued excellent play of the defense with younger players. So that's really what I want to focus on, young players. This team is really young on offense. We saw a lot of the younger defensive players step up and play excellently. So those two things with the record. I really want to say incomplete, though. I'm with you. I don't have enough data to say yes or no. You know, I think if we next year show the kind of progression that we want to on offense with a real quarterback, quote unquote, if we have one of those, um, then and then, you know, we have a decent record. It's like, well, I can look at last year and say the coaching staff did a pretty good job with what they had. And we were on the way up. The other big piece of this is recruiting. We don't know. Still incomplete on that. That feels like something looming over this program over this year and next. You know, I, I still want to take a wait and see approach with that. So I want to do want to say it's a success. I don't think it's success or failure if you go to the playoff. You know, I don't want that to be the bottom line for every season, every time. This team wasn't going to make the playoff probably in any, well, I won't say in any circumstances, but most likely wasn't going to. So some big wins. Some hurtful losses. You know, the LSU game was something I'll remember forever. I love that. But, yes, I'm going to say slight. If we're doing pass-fail here, which was it feels like we're doing, I'm going to say pass. Yeah, and if you look at the national media, like you are saying, certainly it was a tremendous success. Surprise, surprise. We won the SEC East. We had a better record. But, again, I'm not someone who typically measures success by wins and losses. Uh, directly as my sole goal sure and that's what i think you always hear me say on this show and that's what you said that's what's interesting to look at this so it really depends on what narrative you're looking at it depends on what message you buy was the cupboard bare and will muschamp left this team desolate and we had injuries and we had to overcome them all what a heroic situation or was it that we're not really progressing we made some bad tactical decisions we could have done other things with quarterbacks with keeping people whatever but your point is the best looking forward which is next year is really going to be illuminating. And that's kind of what you said is we could look back at this year if next year is great and say, wow, that was a really great job with the Island of Misfit Toys to make sure that they they did well. Or we could look back and say, yikes, it's more of the same. We so known. we're going to find out. So in the spirit of that, what are some improvements, your coach McElwain, what are you going to do in this offseason? What, what needs to be done? So the first thing that comes to everybody's mind in the offseason is are you firing or hiring coaches? It's going to be really telling about what McElwain thinks about his program. Does he keep Nussmeyer and say, you know what, if we get a, you know, I'll keep saying, quote unquote, real quarterback in here, we're going to, you know, boss people. Does he keep Mike Summers in battle offensive line coach? Does he fire Greg Nord, who's had up and down moments this year? So that'll be interesting to see, you know, what his reaction to the season. I think that will be telling for us. Does he think we're in the right spot moving forward? And does he make minimal changes or does he make a lot of changes? So let me ask you, do you have people you feel like he should replace? If I am the coach of the Florida football team, I, I realize a couple things. One, I've had a, a two-year weakness at offensive line. I've got a guy in Mike Summers who's known as being a good football coach, and he's, and he's known as being a poor recruiter. Uh, I've got a recruiting problem if I'm Coach McElwain. I don't care any way you want to slice this up. Florida has a recruiting problem given what other people are doing. I need to fix that. Therefore, I'm going to let Mike Summers go. Um, he's a good coach. He has not proven to be a phenomenal coach. There's been plenty of things that frustrate the heck out of me, but I'm going to have to let him go and get some new blood in there. I'm going to have to let Greg Nord go. There's been inex just inexcusable mind lapses on special teams, although he's had some good moments. But most importantly, 
Greg Nord is also a, a zero effect recruiter and I've got a recruiting problem and I'm halfway through my four-year tenure here. He's got to go. If I was Coach McElwain, I would know about Nussmeyer. And I don't sitting here in this chair. So that's why I keep saying I don't know what I would do with him. If I felt like he was a problem and he's not communicating or helping me develop my quarterbacks, I will let him go. I don't get the sense that's how he feels. No, I don't think that's the case. And, and you can generally tell what coaches are going to be held based upon where they are in the recruiting trail right now. And it's very evident that on Sunday – Coach Mack and Coach Nussmeyer were both meeting with the Baylor transfer, Jarrett Stidman, and and uh, that's going to tell you a lot about what he thinks about Nuss. So for me, I'm definitely firing Summers and I'm firing Nord, and I'm getting some some new people that can primarily recruit very very well. That's what you need most in those situations. Yeah, it feels like the staff does need an influx of recruiting aces. If those guys, you know, if Greg Nord was an ace recruiter and we were like so so on special teams, it's like. Yeah, we'll live with a couple of blunders because this guy's killing it. But if he's not doing that, then it doesn't seem like there's much in his favor there. No, not at all. So we're going to make some changes with some coaches. The biggest question that we're probably facing right now is what do we do with these bowl practices and with this bowl game given our freshman quarterback? So should we play a freshman quarterback in the bowl game? Correct. I'm going to say no. You've held off this long. The bowl game is you know meaningless in terms of you know, Max said it's a must win for us. I don't, I don't see that. You know, I don't think fans put the same weight on them. They put more weight on them than they should, but it's not the same thing as it used to be where that was the crown jewel of your season in some sense. I I would rather preserve both of them because you just don't know. There's guys who, you know, could flame out. Maybe a guy hits. Maybe you think one guy is better slightly, but then that guy goes and takes some illegal substances and is gone from your team. So, I would rather hedge my bets there and keep both of them live, keep both their red shirt available. It's a tricky situation. It seems like the various factors are you're in the camp that says red shirts don't matter because if your quarterback is really good, he's probably only going to play for three total years anyway, and then he'll be gone in the best case scenario. That's true, but that's also the exception. Very few college quarterbacks get drafted into the NFL. Very few of them leave as juniors. It's it's a hard position to have that happen. Second, from all we know, and keep in mind that none of us know, including the message boards you read or the reports you get from the media who cannot watch practice continually, how close this competition is between Trask and Felipe Franks. We don't know. If it's really close, who do you start? And then if you start one of those guys who does really well, what happens at camp? That the fans are all over him, everyone's all over him, then then what do you do? You've got a perception problem? And that's not a reason to pick or not pick a guy, but we're just kind of highlighting the instances here. If he does really poorly, you have the Felipe Franks effect. The the amount of, of ridiculous analytical value people have put on Felipe Franks playing in one spring game. Like a quarter of illustrates to you what this looks like. People think he's terrible because he played a one spring game as a true freshman. Coming out of high school. Early and early. No one even knows what's going on. And they're putting... Oh, he's terrible. I've seen him play. And there's a massive perception battle to be won here. Now, for me, for me, I think the biggest benefit of a bowl game is practice. We talked about it last year. 
Do you let these guys take a lot of first-team reps in these practices? Absolutely. I think so. I think they need it. Sure, why not? They need a lot of that. Do you let Appleby, if he's an if your starter, take maybe 15% of the starter reps? Absolutely, yes. You can By still now, run he there, should but... run it. Yeah. But but I, I, I'm stuck on this one. I'm, I'm one who generally favors playing a quarterback. In fact, I was saying in the second quarter of this Bama game, maybe if you think Franks is your guy play Trask in the Bama game and burn his red shirt. You preserve Franks, you preserve his integrity, but you throw a different wild card out there. There's lots of ways to go with this, but it seems like if you've made it this far, you had a reason why you were redshirting those guys. And again, this comes down to what do you think about Mac's ability to evaluate a quarterback? If he had a reason to keep them redshirted and he had a reason to not play him against Alabama, maybe there's a reason why. I haven't yet trusted Mac's quarterback decisions. So here I am just sort of word vomiting out all the fact that this is such a difficult thing to do it would be incredibly unconventional to play a freshman quarterback to burn a red shirt in a completely meaningless bowl game it seems like the risks of that are far far greater than any potential rewards you get because one game of experience in a bowl game does not really significantly translate to an opening season game against michigan Months and months later, yeah, people are I just worried don't about think that it does. Someone in their first start going against Michigan, but it would be valuable. But you're you're weighting that value against a potential redshirt. I mean, it, and also, are these guys willing to burn their redshirt? I don't know that I would be. And Mac mentioned that you know we we could those guys could say you know I'd rather not play in this game. It feels like a waste of you know my potential future here. So lots of factors in there. Do you think he's going to play a freshman? I don't think he will. I think that if you've made it this far. You're not doing it. Yeah. And that's kind of the thought. There were times when I, I think he could have made a great case to play them. And that would have been earlier. This seems like I would get on the podcast and talk about how this is a compounding of another tactical error if he played him. It's like you're playing your cards wrong. There was a time to do this, and that ship has sailed. That time is not now. I don't see the benefits of this. I do see the benefits of these guys getting tremendous amounts of playing time as the starter in practice. I think that's crucial. And I think that's what the staff will do. Lastly, looking at this improvement component, McElwain keeps talking about this concept of staff size. What What is he talking about? Does this matter? Is this a problem at Florida compared to other schools? So I don't have the total numbers on our staff size versus everyone else's, but the perception is it is a problem. So when McElwain talks about the we're behind in facilities, etc., that etc. is staff size. So here's what some of the larger programs, most notably Alabama, they've inflated the size of their coaching staff. And I want to use that word loosely because they can't call them coaches because there's restrictions on how many coaches you have. But you can have support staff, aka analysts and things like that. One name that made headlines, Steve Sarkeesian, former head coach uh, at Washington and USC, is now on Alabama staff as a quote-unquote analyst. What he does, who knows? Game prep, recruiting, I don't know. Um, but they have a really bloated number of people, and that is a tactical advantage. So uh, if you're Alabama, you can't spend money. You have more money than you know what to do with. So you're not going to, you know, spend it. You can't pay players more, right? You can't. Your facilities are already as good as they could possibly be. Where do you spend that money? It's like let's hire a bunch of more dudes and gain a competitive advantage that way. And so if that is an advantage, we might be a disadvantage. And that's what he's talking about. And I think you know. I think that's probably there's some truth to that now. Who knows how much each of those people are worth? I don't know. Um, but it is something that I know Mac would like us to upgrade. Hey, you've got situations where Alabama pays more than $3 million for non-coaching staff. 
these are guys that are cutting up film. Uh, these are guys that are breaking down opponents significantly in advance. And in reality, the best way to look at this is Alabama has created an NFL atmosphere. And this is very efficient. This makes sense. The efficiency person in me that likes to see systems run at their highest level approves of this because that's what you're doing is you're just Adam Smithing division of labor as much as possible. You, the head coach, are not going to ever have to cut film on your own. You're never going to have to look up a recruiting database. You tell someone to do it, they do it for you. You use your brain and your strategy to make it work. And what McElwain is saying is we are far behind in that regard. Florida has kind of been known as a school that hasn't had a lot of those things. We haven't had to win that way. We were the exception to the rule. But now if you look at the schools that are winning, Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, Michigan, they have massive support staffs. It is an NFL mentality. It is a big topic of conversation in college sports. If this is the first time you've heard about this, you are going to hear about it a lot more. It's relatively new because Nick Saban was the first one to do it. But this is a hot, hot topic McElwain has been imploring the University of Florida to give him a bigger budget to hire these support staffers. He has slowly been doing it, but as you will hear him continue to say, we're significantly behind Alabama in number of support staff personnel. And this is interesting as we move to a new regime here with a new athletic director. I'll applaud Jeremy Foley. If you look at the percentage of money that he spends in football versus other sports, it's different than in places like Alabama. Foley's goal is that we would be a top-tier program in every single sport. And he largely achieved that, which is incredible. And there, you mentioned maybe a few athletic programs around the country. Stanford comes to mind. Um, a few others rise and fall with that. But Florida has been elite in almost every program, save maybe women's basketball, where they've either won a title, won a conference title, been a top-10 ranking. So we haven't committed the same resources to football as other schools because, we one, we wanted to excel in everything. And two, I don't think that Foley thought that we needed those things to compete. And maybe that was true in the Spurrier area, but I don't know if it's as true anymore. If you don't have a, you know, a genius, I'll use that word as a coach, a forward-thinking person as Spurrier was in his era, where he could win, you know, in spite of anything. So uh, I would think with the commitment of late era Foley and probably Scott Strickland that we're going to see more money go towards the football team in these types of like maybe hidden areas that you would have seen in the past. And that would be wise. Change is a constant in life, whether we like it or not. And if you want to remain efficient, if you want to remain progressive, if you want to continue to improve what you're doing, you must be able to adapt and change and adopt the best practices. Support staff size right now is a best practice and it makes the program better. It's something we should definitely do. Uh, as to whether or not you like or dislike that, that's up to you. But regards to competition and efficiency, it absolutely will make you a better program if you're employing those resources correctly. So Florida's going to play Iowa in the Outback Bowl. Woohoo! The Outback Bowl. Yeah. It's always so exciting on Monday, January 2nd. We're going to have a full episode on that the last week of December, in which we'll cover that game in detail like a typical game week. You can look for that then. We don't know exactly what data will be, but that will be coming. So we're going to just press the pause button and save that one for later. Know that's coming. And now we're going to dive in at an overview on the college football playoff, which was just done on Sunday. We have the matchups. Bama plays Washington, and Ohio State is going to play Clemson. What are your thoughts on those matchups? And what are your thoughts on the situation with regards to why Ohio State's in and not Penn State or any other team for that matter? Yeah, I like the matchups. I mean, I think Bama is going to – I mean, they already are a heavy favorite against Washington. 
I don't think they're going to get steamrolled. Like last year, Michigan State was like, man, they're in trouble. It's going to be interesting. I love the Ohio State-Clemson matchup. I think that could be a fantastic game. What about you? I like the matchups a lot. It gives us a rare look at a, a team against the world mentality in Washington. And, oh, by the way, Washington's coached by Chris Peterson, who is very yeah, familiar with team against the world mentalities. He's been very successful in these moments. I love it. I am super excited about the fact that no one is going to give Washington a shot. And they may get crushed, but it's going to make for great and entertaining David versus Goliath viewing. Ohio State versus Clemson is a, is a heavyweight matchup. Uh, it should just be a fantastically fun game. You have two of the best recruiters in the game going at it. Two similar guys with regards to their fire and their energy. Um, that should be a really fun game. And this is why you love the playoff, is it gives yeah. you a chance to watch these games, and they are really exciting. It's excellent. All right, so some controversy. We, you know talked about it beforehand and it ended up breaking down like we thought it would that you know seemingly come down to Penn State getting left out versus Ohio State or Washington but let's maybe focus on Penn State Ohio State do you feel like Penn State got screwed I do feel like they got screwed I do and for me that the larger argument is always that you just have eight teams and with eight teams you have USC in there you have Penn State in there uh, you could you could go as far as to have Oklahoma in there I mean, whatever the case may be but if you look back historically, and we're not going to do that now, but you can do it on your own time, there's a very, very good argument to make that dividing line at eight. Just take a look at the teams and find out where that cut goes. It, 9, 10, 11, 12 tend to be significantly weaker in that split. But if I am a Penn State fan, I don't know how I don't feel like I got screwed. Yes, I got walled by Michigan. I understand that my resume is maybe not quite as strong as Ohio State's with regards to who I've played. Ohio State played a significant out-of-conference opponent. Uh, that they beat, and that adds to their their resume. They're also Ohio State, which adds to their own resume by default. But Penn State did something that I don't want to let go. They won all the games they had to win to put themselves in a position to win the opportunity to play in the playoff. That is a hard accomplishment. That Wisconsin team is a good football team. They had to come back and win that game. They showed a lot of grit. They showed a lot of class. They're not as talented as Ohio State. But mainly, I can sum up all of my thoughts on this subject like this. I do not like that there are X number of people in a room that are deciding who is better than someone else. It goes against everything I believe in. And if you were to use that logic, you would not have the 2006 Florida Gator National Championship basketball team. You would not have the first Florida Gator Championship football team in 06 not the Spurrier team both of those teams would be gone because they would quote as we heard so many so many comments last night that infuriated me with these wizards in the room saying Ohio State is just a better football team they're better athletically they're better than Penn State they're XYZ blah 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 well listen they're wrong and they're wrong all the time and so take away half our championships they don't matter because someone told us we weren't as good let them decide that on the field. Let that happen on its own. Move it to eight. That's my thought on it. As far as the logic goes behind why you pick Ohio State over Penn State, I can see why if you have to make that decision, you could fall on that side of the umbrella. That makes sense to me. I don't have to like it. It just, it just goes against everything I believe in with regards to it being decided by the actual participants. Yeah, this is tough because, you know, obviously Penn State beat Ohio State on the field, and that should be the determining factor most of the time. But when you look at their overall resume, Ohio State's is clearly superior. Beating that Big 12 champion out-of-conference game, you know, Oklahoma win. And, you know, here's the problem that is, you know, inherent in the system is divisions. And not everyone plays the same schedule. Ohio State played a harder Big 10 schedule 
than Penn State did. And then also they played a tougher non-conference schedule, and they won, whereas Penn State lost to Pitt. Side note, Pitt with wins over Clemson and Penn State, which is incredible. (laughs) That feels like absurd that that happened. But so I don't know. I And I feel like, oh, they won the conference championship. They have the win over the other team that we're considering. No-brainer, you put them in. But I don't know. That's This is an unexpected response for me that I feel like Ohio State should have been the one in there, and that pains me to say that because I'm not a fan of their particular program. But I don't know. It's a, it's so tough, and you're right. I know I've eight would make everything easier, but my main fear, and maybe this is my conservative you know, stance on this is I, the worst possible scenario for me is 16 team playoff, which I think would kill the product that we currently love. I love this 14 playoff. Would eight be better? Yes. But you know what, Penn State? Just win your games. Beat Pitt and you're in. So I don't know. At some point, two losses, I can't really feel too badly for you. And yeah, Ohio State probably, I don't know if they definitely deserve to be in, but they're in Penn State. Win your games. There you go. And with that, we're going to close it out. Look for us again after Christmas sometime. It's been a great season, guys. We're going to turn and look in the future and hopefully towards bigger and better things. Pros. When the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job and at everyday savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.